You're listening to the Archaeology Podcast Network. Hi. So today's topic is, well, it's got a lot of false starts. I've tried to rewrite it several times, and that's because it's really difficult to deal with such a nebulous and formless kind of idea. Instead of being something precise and structured, a lot of the things that we talk about when we talk about identity nationality, there's always this kind of plausible deniability in some of the words used. So please bear with me as I have to go through quite a lot of different ideas and sayings and things just to even begin to talk about the very the very principles of what's going on here and what's being said. So strap in, ladies and gentlemen. This is the Supremacist Cheese Board. Have you ever had the problem that you can't tell one right-wing cheese from another? Does it bother you that your mascarpone might just have that anti-Semitic flavor when really you just want the taste of race realism? Hi, Dick Spender here with another fantastic product. Now with the Supremacist Cheese Board, no more mixing up various factions of cheese, no matter how close they ideologically are. Had enough of Cheddar Man? Why not replace him with the soft and crumbly rationalization that only makes sense if you hate people of color? For that fiery taste, add some jalapenos to our young age cheese. It acts just like plain cheese, but underneath, it's only 91% white cheese. That's unbelievable! The board has easily marked areas for the various groups despite all being on the same board. Alt-right, alt-right, neo-Nazis, race realists, and white supremacists. Here's what some of our customers are saying. When the other cheeses overpower him, I love being able to separate my Stilton of a cad, or as I call him, the stinking bishop. (laughs) Call in now and get a free Confederate cheese knife signed by David Duke. Whilst stocks last, terms and conditions apply. Certain people excluded from offer. Remember, divide and conquer the overbearing smell and cross-contamination of the vetted dairy products with the Supremacist Cheese Board, the only way to properly digest the rot. Now, I, I know that was, that was a bit of fun, but in reality, that's not the end of the argument, and it's no, by no means an argument in itself. It's great to poke fun at those on the far right who are happy to kind of group people into large generalizations and then try and draw a narrative out of that that has ethnic and national kind of importance and ultimately has violent ends. It's been mentioned before that although people like Richard Spencer ask for a peaceful ethnic cleansing, it's a bit of an oxymoronic statement to say that, because any removal of one ethnic group from a country that they've lived in for hundreds or thousands of years will inevitably mean some form of violence, whether that's state violence or, in some ways, when you look at these militias and these small groups in America, You kind of wonder, if the state wasn't going to ethnically cleanse, then would these guys step in? And that's where the worry is. But ultimately, the premises on which these people are drawing upon are fundamentally not rooted in any reality. And instead, the differences between the representations of actual archaeological research and how it's then disseminated and the differences in audience is being used to kind of talk about a plot that doesn't actually exist. That plot is the plot of Cheddarman. Thing is, Cheddarman is not a controversial subject. 
In many archaeological circles, it's pretty well known that skin color really does vary across populations, and in the distant past, it's summarized that perhaps lighter skin developed in some parts of northern hemispheres to better absorb vitamin D. But this wouldn't have been because of the lack of sunlight. But this this kind of change, this process, is not a process that kind of brings us to where we are today. That still brings us to thousands of years ago. This is the fundamental issues, how far back do you go until you hit a point where everybody's related to each other. If you look at modern DNA studies and you look at things, if you send your DNA off for ancestry, you get a kind of, there's a point that it's accurate up to about a thousand years or a thousand AD. We're, we're really talking about, in terms of human existence, smaller chunks of time than would be necessary to divide people up into different races. Now, this is my, my main premise is that race doesn't isn't real as we imagine it but i'll come to that later on and you know uh, I, I i do want to properly talk about that because i think um a lot of people don't don't really get what it mean what people mean by race isn't real and such so i will talk about that later but i think it's better to talk about the context of cheddar man how he fits in to a grand narrative and then just kind of talk about what we can do next. Chapter 1 Behold the Cheddar Man So, Cheddar Man was a skeleton found in a cave about 100 years ago um, in the region of Cheddar down in England. What's interesting about him is that he's one of the oldest fully complete skeletons that we have available. And DNA was then extracted from some of the teeth to then provide us with some understanding of who he was, where he came from, and uh, what sort of connection did he have to modern Britain. Now you're thinking, if he's 10,000 years old and DNA tests only go back a thousand years, how does that kind of match up? Well, when it comes to DNA, we can be general or specific. We can look at certain bits of DNA to see if they match up. And we have these larger definitions of DNA called haplogroups. These haplogroups are quite wide general um, fingerprints, as it were, of DNA. And we know that from that study conducted uh, by the National History Museum that uh, on Cheddarman that he shares with about 10% of the population um, DNA similarities. Now, obviously, um, that was a pretty innocuous kind of uh, revelation for us. That was kind of a normal kind of thing that wasn't really, you know, wasn't really, didn't bother anybody. However, <laughs> Channel 4, the TV network, decided to part fund a recreation, representation of Cheddarman, because in working on the DNA, they actually found that they could match up certain markers that they would expect for brown to dark skin. Chapter 2. The Channel 4 Factor Now, um, what, this, what this meant was that Channel 4 finally had the controversy that it desired. Interestingly enough, um, obvious, well, obviously, Channel 4 then, you know, uh, made a documentary specifically about Cheddarman. However, the study itself uh, that was conducted by the National History Museum and a couple of others was actually about a further number of bodies as well and studies them. Now, Cheddarman was no, certainly not the first person in the cave uh, in Cheddar Gorge, but he was in a line of bodies that were found there. And so the bodies that were also studied were not contemporaneous with him. The idea was to sample another a number of bones that had not gone such alteration after the deaths that nothing could be recovered um, to actually identify and have a look at w what kind of the genetic makeup was or the kind of information that we could glean from these skeletons. Having made a documentary about it, Channel 4 wanted to get the... They, they wanted to get the views. They wanted to get the word out there. They wanted to make sure 
that everybody was watching this. And so they helped, you know, understandably fan the flames of interest by having this whole documentary about Cheddarman. And of course, the first of it came in a Guardian article which said, um, first Britons had dark to black skin which obviously is going to start some people. And um, there was a number of interviews conducted on both the BBC and other uh, network shows talking from wide-ranged perspectives, including scientists and uh, one of the researchers, Tom Booth, um, who actually worked on the project directly. Despite this not being a question, more like, a, oh, this is interesting what we find, the answer from the right-wing blogosphere was one of fright. Chapter 3. The Cheese Knives With such quotes that, uh, to that the globalists, in obviously brackets, are dispossessing white Britons of their heritage, end quote, by inserting dark to black skin into the British heritage, there was some sort of disconnect from the modern groups that were existed. But you see, this wasn't just one or two comments. This was entire blogs, videos, everything that they could throw at this. They wanted to. They decided that this was the ultimate threat to white identity in their minds and their words. And that Cheddarman existing had to be something else. It had to either be a plot to deceive everybody, or it had to be planted evidence. Let's take an article that was written just after Cheddarman results were released um, from the website Depend Evropa. Evropa. Yeah, Defend Evropa. God, they should really check that. So, in any case, this website um, is very much about heritage and identity, population replacement, the establishment, and other news. Um, a website, let's be absolutely honest here, which may have a little bias. If I don't, you know, I think I find some possible possible inclination to that. But as an opening line for an article, I think this sums up pretty much what the uh, entire article is about. A few weeks ago, the lying media hacks were falling all over themselves to eulogize this so-called new discovery that, as they put it, the first Britons were black. Yeah, I think that's pretty pretty much uh, sums up exactly what you need to know by this article. But what I think is quite interesting about the article is that interspersed with um, obviously little hints and nudges that you know, white is right and stuff like this, it's much it, it does try to have this kind of scientific decency to it. Um, I think there's uh, there's some wonderful talks about haplogroups. There's actually quite a big chunk about haplogroups and how they relate to different populations in Europe. You've got nice little charts here, actually wonderful charts, which have not been properly um, cited. There's no actual sources on those, so that's interesting. Um, maybe, maybe they're just going for the whole, you know, uh, everybody knows this. Oh, uh, let's see. So what I find is really interesting that I didn't know, um, and I wonder if how true this is because it is again an unsourced map. Interesting that um, they argue that Cheddarman, according to one map, Haplogroup U, which the Cheddarman is part of, has uh, a lot more connection to the Sami uh, up in the northern Scandinavia. The Sami being the native peoples up there. Uh, they're really, really, yeah. Hmm, interesting. I actually want to figure out if that was correct. So I, I learned something from a right-wing uh, website. Or I learned lies. I don't know. Um, that's the whole thing. But I want to kind of, um, kind of turn around that I think, I think the, the final bit about Chatterman is really, really important. And it sums up a great many conversations here. The crucial point here 
is that the so-called Cheddar Man is, in all likelihood, no ancestral relative of ours at all. The Indo-Europeans, who for the most part are one people, are descended from the Neolithic farming tribes of Anatolia and the Pontic Steppe, just as the mainstream media have always quietly admitted. The fact that they push this Britain's were Black Cheddar Man theory is a demonstration of just how dishonest they are and exactly the length of suicides they will extend in order to gaslight Europeans into accepting more foreigners. Yes, that's 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 the real that's the real crux of the matter here. Cheddarman's blackness is really just an opportunity to talk about the migrant crisis. It's just the opportunity to let more in. And I think this is this is really what makes history and archaeology so interesting is that much of history and its discovery and its interest comes from its relation to the current present. Something I've always kind of like tried to push is this idea that archaeology may have facts, but our interpretations of those facts and the predominance of those facts as part of a cultural understanding are always viewed through the lens of society. And this is why Cheddarman is such an interesting case, is because it provides a kind of foil for right-wing um, kind of reactionaries who want to use it as, as an example of the great plot. The great plot to undermine British heritage because, in their minds, British and white are two synonymous things. The other interesting thing is that, you know, with Cheddarman being black, I always find it weird that it's only about migrants. Britain has other racist tendencies in the past, and I wonder how it affects those conversations. I think that would be quite interesting. But of course, I think D Defend Europa uh, really just care about migrants, Islam, population replacement, heritage identity, the establishment, and other news. <laughs> I just find a picture where they've lightened the skin of Cheddar Man. You know, the representation. They've literally gone in and, like, adjusted the brightness and contrast to make him look whiter. Oh, I love these guys. Their blogs are just so funny. <laughs> so, next up, we have a more recent uh, addition to our blogosphere. This is from the European Defence League, and uh, it poses the question... Is the claim that Cheddarman was black just another stage in the propaganda war on whiteness? Now, this very interesting post, um, really, I don't know, it, it, it's, it's got this air of uh, pretentiousness in it. I'm not trying to poison the well, I just mean that the guy opens up with, this is what I wrote out on Twitter to this god-awful elitist scumbag. Ah, it's so good. So he starts off, he's like, Billy Bragg, the musician, decided to tweet out and say, I just love the expression on Cheddar Man's face. It's like he knows how much it would annoy white supremacists to learn that the earliest Britons had dark skin. Ooh, ooh, our friend Mr. Harris, they're all called Bloody Harris, aren't they? Or Murray. Um, so Mr. Harris here says, I didn't really have time to do the due diligence, so remaining relatively cautious. My comment- <laughs> This is a cautious comment! <laughs> sorry, sorry, this is really good. Really. So my cautious comment was, More anti-white propaganda? Blue eyes, curly hair and dark skin? Dot dot dot. Really? It's extremely dangerous when science- This is in- quotation marks, is used to serve a political agenda. Yeah, mate, I'm really cautious there. Really, really freaking cautious comment. No, I, I do love the idea that um, he's he's kind of saying that, yeah, science shouldn't be used uh, to... No, but science, as in pseudoscience, shouldn't be used to serve a political agenda but I thought if people didn't believe in pseudoscience, then it wouldn't be an issue. It wouldn't be an issue if science was used to further a political agenda. Very, very interesting. And uh, <laughs> I must say, this guy goes into all this other junk. I mean, apparently um, a Muslim 
is now head, oh, is head of, well, he's in a high position in the Swedish National Heritage Board, because that really matters when we're talking about Britain, but I guess it all works together under the grand conspiracy, so we'll, we'll, we'll leave that one for now. But I find it interesting because this, this article kind of goes into a lot. This is really long. Jesus, God damn it. But I want to focus on a little bit uh, about what he says about racial characteristics. And it's quite, I think this is quite interesting because this is where I think the scariest thing for me is, um, the most concerning thing for me is racial characteristics. I've always understood that European racial characteristics developed as a result of cold weather. The lack of sunlight led to a decrease in the need for melanin in the skin. The weather also led to hunter-gathering becoming impractical because food was often short in supply and difficult to store over winter. Don't know how true that is. This led to the development of food storage and farming techniques. Wait, wait a minute, in Europe? Farming started in the Levant. Anyway, right, yeah, yeah. Um... The organization of human societies and stable settlements and the origins of a very rudimentary European culture. Okay, yeah, no, I'm gone. Um, so, I mean, the thing is, if you're not really clued up into how human history is, that could seem like a pretty honest and not too controversial topic. I mean, yeah, I, I could, I could, I could see how somebody who just hadn't read the information that was available could think that. The, the problem is that farming techniques developed primarily in the Levant, in the Middle East, and we're not really too sure exactly how those ideas spread, but we can see changes over time spreading outwards. There's still a lot of conversations about at what point does cultivating crops become farming? You know, like, for example, if I'm a human, and I notice that if I leave some seeds in a field that next year if I come back there's stuff more planted and so I, I kind of make this part of the field my field area for this kind of crop and I leave the seeds and they come back and you know I, I keep doing that and I grow my field bigger and bigger and suddenly you know I've got what could be the early stages of agriculture but it's quite difficult to really say what point that agricultural change happens so you know when we talk about agriculture and the transition farming it's always about a very big change so we don't really talk about the little changes and what's here's happening is i think a conflation of what we don't know happened in between two times and well obviously people in britain and europe developed farming techniques by themselves there is always the possibility that a kind of change, exchange of ideas happened, people moved to different places. They're all on the board. But um, yeah, uh, we continue on because I also think that um, a rudimentary European culture doesn't exist, hasn't exist. I mean, even recent, I mean, like you had the Germanic tribes, the Gallic tribes, even the Romans didn't, like Romans called everybody just the non-Roman kind of like everybody else was, you know, barbarians. But, um, I mean, like even, even history that stretches only a couple of thousand years ago, you did not have a European culture. I mean, Germany was a bunch of principalities for hundreds of years. Austria, Austria used to be an empire. There, there's never been, um, there was never a cohesive European culture, even in the distant past. So this guy is full of junk, but he hasn't really, he hasn't really said anything aggressive or confrontational. He just said things that are wrong anyway. That's the only thing he says is right is the cheddar man's findings don't change this. No, they don't because what you've said is absolutely wrong. So no, it can't change a wrong thing, I guess, within the context of its own. And this is this is precisely the thing is that these people have a perspective and that perspective serves their nationalistic tendencies. And because of that, 
um, everything that kind of they get fits has to fit into the perspective or it has to be reinforced that it doesn't work or it doesn't change anything. No, 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 it's just a silly little anomaly. <laughs> Everybody gets anomalies, haha, <laughs> no worries, it's just part of science. As if these people really care about science. <laughs> so this guy from English uh, European Defence League goes on to basically say that, you know, Genderman has been weaponized by turning him black. He's he's basically a weapon again from the elitists and you know those coming quotes or without brackets, and they basically argue about that Genderman has been overemphasized as the first Briton, and um, you know him being black either represents an ancientness to blackness in uh, the UK, or alternatively, it just represents that uh, people developed lighter skin in the Northern Hemisphere in Britain at a, you know, uh, in a short period of time than we thought. And the mixing of these kind of two very different uh, ideas, um, I think, goes to show the whole problem with this kind of. Um, this kind of response to Cheddarman. Nobody uh, that I've read or I've watched videos of really has a distinct rebuttal because many of them don't actually know what they're arguing against. And this is this is why I think Cheddarman is quite interesting. Now, obviously, we we we've you know we've we've had this bit of fun. This is how Cheddarman's been so far, and because of this lack of coordinated response, there was quite a bit of joy, a quite a bit of jubilation, when New Scientist published the article uh, about a week and a half after the original kind of announcement that ancient dark-skinned Britain Cheddarman may not be true. Trust me. There are so many people right now. There were so many right-wing bloggers who literally jumped on it as soon as they could. They were going insane about it. They were like, ha, ha, we find it. We've, we've done it. They're proof. There's proof. Now, unfortunately, that is behind a paywall. But what's really good is that, you know, you know the, the these right wing bloggers they'll they'll remove the paywall for you as well um so i was able to get the um i was able to get the article otherwise and despite that title i think that title for the same reason as cheddarman himself being controversial um didn't really give the whole story and uh, what's really quite interesting is we actually get an idea of some of the interesting parts of how we know that Cheddarman, or how we suggest, better said, that Cheddarman may have had dark to brown skin. The researcher uh, Susanna Walsh uh, from the Indiana University Purdue in the University Indianapolis was the one who had a method for figuring or predicting eye, hair, and skin pigmentation from their DNA. And using this model that she developed, um, they tried it on Cheddarman. The model focuses on 36 pots in 16 genes, which are all linked to skin color. From this New Scientist article, the, which goes on to explain this, when Walsh and her colleagues applied the model to Cheddarman, they concluded the skin color fell between dark and dark to black. Now, this is what's really interesting, is that instead of the unraveling of a conspiracy, the New Scientist article rather demonstrates science and certainty and possibility. Now, Walsh does stress that the study doesn't conclusively demonstrate that Cheddarman had dark to black skin, but it suggests that he had the DNA markings for people who have those kind of traits. And thus, what you could say is that it is very likely or un it's very likely or highly likely that he may have had within that range of pigmentation. Even within that, you know, it's all to do with how you then analyze the DNA in the first place. Chapter 4 The Sar Grips of Truth 
there's some issues with this kind of methodology. Obviously, within science, there's lots of different uh, discussions. There are some people who argue that there are far too many genes linked to different um, phenotypes, um, uh, you know, the, the expression of those genes. And, um, you know, you can't really conclusively say if somebody was a certain skin color from their DNA solely from what we already know. So, the far right rejoices over the possibility that science is being done correctly in the actual research where it's not asserted that the first Britain was black. Hmm, that's really interesting, isn't it? There is this divide between what is being sold and what is actually being said. And this is what I originally mentioned, that Cheddarman has a number of different perspectives associated with him. Um, a number of different perspectives that ultimately indicate the various ways in which history interacts with the population. And this is precisely the... Ah, God damn it. This is precisely the problem when you're talking about these kind of situations. Now, I mean, look, I had a bit of fun laughing at some of this stuff. But I think, for me, it also is worrying that this level of discourse doesn't really have an answer straight away. That these, these right-wing bloggers, and they're free to do this, you know, they can say whatever they want, uh, free speech and all that, but at the same time, there's no, there doesn't seem to be a proper answer, you know? Yes, we can go on about how, well, this is what the research says, blah, blah, blah. But we can't deny that, let's be honest here, Channel 4 wanted to make a documentary about it, they wanted to turn up the heat on the controversy, and they did. And they really made quite an impact in that. But what's quite interesting is that if we can't really tell DNA-wise what skin color people had in the past, is it safe to assume that when we draw things or represent illustration in the past, that we should be drawing Neolithic peoples in Britain as white, then can we draw them as black? Or can we not draw them as any? We can draw them blue or green, because that would be the same extent of a knowledge. This idea that there's this constant, inherent and consistent population living in a certain part of the world, I think is the fundamental thing that we have to get over, because the only reason that you'd need that consistency is if you were trying to make the argument that you deserve to be somewhere, that you have to be somewhere, and that this point is specifically for you. And that's what I seriously have an issue with. Now, I think it's important to actually go back to the article itself, the, the very interesting article, I've got it somewhere here. The article is called Population Replacement in Early Neolithic Britain. Uh, it's a very, it's a pre, there's a preprint, a pre, preprint available at the moment, which I managed to get my hands on. And it's got a lot of really quite interesting discussions about the intense debate about how Britain was shaped. But it's not specifically about Cheddarman. Instead, if I read bits from the abstract here, um, we assembled genome-wide data from six Mesolithic and 67 Neolithic individuals found in Britain, dating from 10.5 to 4.5 thousand years before present. Before present here meaning before 1945. A data set in that includes 22 newly reported individuals and the first genomic data from British Mesolithic hunter-gatherers. Our analysis reveals persistent genetic affinities between Mesolithic British and Western European hunter-gatherers over a period spanning Britain's separation from continental Europe. This is where the land between what is now Denmark and the Netherlands uh, used to be attached to England, kind of disappeared. It was called Doggerland. Very, very interesting, that Doggerland. <clears throat> God, I'm such a child. 
Um, we find the overwhelming support for agriculture being introduced by incoming continental farmers. Haha, <laughs> that relates back to what I was saying earlier. With small and geographically structured levels of additional hunter-gathering into progression, we find genetic affinity between British and Iberian Neolithic populations, indicating that the British Neolithic people derived much of their ancestry from Anatolian farmers who originally followed the Mediterranean route of dispersal likely entered Britain from northwestern mainland Europe. Aw, it's not lovely. It's a nice little concise little thing, but it demonstrates really that um, this paper and the science behind it isn't purely about Cheddarman being this all-encompassing early Britain, the first Britain, but instead it actually focuses on a lot of the data to do with the genetics at the time and new data being added to expand the current understanding. I, 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 I really fail to see how that has any kind of conspiratorial basis. And I think that precisely because it doesn't have any kind of structure, it has a very scientific structure in its data analysis, it's very difficult to really attack the paper itself, you know? Because if you go onto these online blogs and these videos, you'll always see a discussion of the newspapers or the TV interviews, the dissemination of the information. But I haven't really seen a lot of people debunking the individual lines in the actual um, paper itself or writing reviews or answering because that would buy into the establishment, right? Yeah. Mm. I would really recommend you guys read the paper. It is a bit heavy, but it's only eight pages long. It's really not a very long paper at all. Um, and it's also got really, really good examinations of materials and methods and stuff as well. So I, I personally find them really, really interesting. I'll just read the summary out so that it's out there on the internet. Because I think a lot of the time is the information never properly gets across, and I think it's good to talk about it. In summary, our results indicate that the progression of Neolithic in Britain was unusual when compared to other previously studied European regions. Rather than reflecting the slow admixture processes that occurred between Anatolian Neolithic farmers and local hunter-gatherer groups in the areas of continental Europe, we infer a British Neolithic proceeding with little intergression from resident foragers, either during initial colonization phase or throughout the Neolithic. This may reflect the fact that farming arrived in Britain a couple thousands years later than it did in Europe. The farming population who arrived in Britain may have mastered more of the technologies needed to thrive in northern Western Europe than the farmers who had first expanded into these areas. A large-scale seaborne movement of established Neolithic groups led to the rapid establishment of a first agrarian and pastoral economies across Britain, providing a plausible scenario for the scale of genetic and cultural change in Britain. I'm, I'm, I'm really, I'm trying my best to find the controversiality in it. I really want to know what the real meaning of this all is. But I won't find it in my perspective. I won't find it in my worldview. I, I won't find the problem with this paper thinking the way I do. Because the way I think is in long term. You know, I'm an archaeologist. I care about, like, population changes in the Neolithic, not in the last five years. And I think that's, that's the... Um, that's the problem here is that I need to, if I really need to get in the headspace of far right people to really understand it, but I don't really want to do that. <laughs> I don't want to get into that headspace because to me, there's so much evidence to me that this idea that blood connects you to your nation um, is wrong. Um, and the fact is like, I'm an immigrant. You know, I, I was born in Europe. I, I'm mainland Europe. I, uh, at four years old, I went to, uh, I moved to Northern Ireland where my father's from and I lived in Northern Ireland for my whole life. And then I studied in Scotland and I live in Scotland. And so I'm constantly moving. There's nothing that ties me to my nation or anything like that. 
um, because I don't really feel a part of that nation um, by blood or genetics. And instead, I, I feel kind of like civically responsible to the communities and the society that I'm in. So it doesn't really matter what my great, great ancestral heritage is because I can always be a product of adaptability. I can always change who I am and where I am because I don't need to rely on inherent descriptions to let me know who I am. But I think this is the this is the draw of the far right is that by giving people something that is inherently them to make up for a perceived loss of existence or a perceived loss of ability, reason to exist, I, I think it's quite a potent thing. And I think in other terms, you know, there's there, there's a crisis of masculinity, you know. Um, I think a lot of men don't really uh, feel like they know what they have to do. And there are some who, I mean, not to be contrite, but, you know, fight clubs kind of, I've got the job, I've got the car, I've got the house, I've filled it with nice things, um, now what? And I, I honestly, I, th I think that's a, you know, that's a genuine feeling that some people have, that there's no purpose, they don't have any purpose. And I think when somebody then comes along and says, actually, you do have purpose and you can be a hero, then it's a very tempting thing. I, I, I don't, I don't buy into far-right ideologies primarily because they are often racist, they're based in false science and pseudoscience, and, but I can understand fully why people want a sense of belonging, but I don't think you need to check your DNA to belong somewhere. Chapter 5 The Fermentation Stage What Cheddarman represents in the dissemination part of this, as opposed to the actual science, is that Cheddarman fitted in really well to the narrative of the right wing. And this is where I want to kind of explain the whole issues that I have with the right wing and how it kind of fits together. Um, because I would argue that the purpose of the past there's many different people who use the past in different ways. You know, for example, you could use the past to try and make a claim to something. You know, you use your ancestry to say that you belong somewhere. Or use the past to try and learn and better yourself and not to repeat the past. And that's on a, almost on an individual level. You use the past to kind of figure out where you are, where you're going. But if you feel at a crossroads, what is the past to you? It's why people like tradition, for example. You know, people feel that tradition gives them a grounding, a reason to do something. But that doesn't mean it's a good reason. It doesn't mean it's a reason that we should continue to do something just because it's traditional. But then traditions are something that we cling to. It's something we like. It's ritual behavior, as the archaeologists would say. But I think there's also the whole thing about the expert in all of this, that the archaeological expert is not really, is all part of the same ploy, the same plot. After we've kind of said, okay guys, you know, it's funny that uh, Cheddarman is the ancestor of everyone in Britain and he's black and you really don't like black people because that that's basically the conceit of this you know let let's be honest here if if they weren't talking about race and Cheddarman was black it wouldn't really matter at all but they kind of do want to talk about race and that's ultimately what it is but when we laugh at them for Cheddarman being black we're accepting their premise of race is correct. We're laughing at them, but we're maintaining their worldview. We're saying that, haha, isn't it funny that, you know, your great 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 times 34,000 grandpappy was black, but you hate black people? Then, yeah, but we're still talking about white and black people. And this is where I want to talk about, you know, biological races as we understand them in the 20th century. 
it's obvious, however, that, and it's genetically demonstrated that people, biologically, humans vary. The biological differences, however, do not match to those racial groups that we often categorize humans into. Race, quotation marks, as we understand it, isn't real. On top of which, when we do group populations under these races, we find that many of these people are extremely biologically different to one another, with variation being more than just simply a function of skin color. And this isn't new, this isn't a recent idea. Anthropologists have known about this and talked about this for years. But as you can tell, it's not exactly catchy to say, you know, race doesn't exist when a lot of people kind of intuitively believe some sort of racial differences exist. But we've had an obsession with these fake or artificial racial categories for years. And for, for this kind of reason, a world divided along racial lines kind of m makes sense. That's how the world exists. That's how you can see the world today. But it's wrong. Race in terms that the far right would like to put it is wrong. But they've got a head start on everyone because of history. If you want to read more about biological races, there's great. Uh, there's a few things from the Anthropological American uh, Anthropological Association. There's a number of things and studies you can find online. There's a really interesting University of Pennsylvania study uh, looking at DNA and skin pigmentation in African uh, groups, which apparently was because most of the time DNA hadn't actually be tests hadn't been actually done on African populations with respect to one another and apparently there that's where you know we kind of find even more examples of uh, variation so it's not as if people aren't looking into this they are but if you think that black white and however else the whatever words you want to use these days uh, divide up it's not really the same way it doesn't match up to the ideas and the descriptions that the far right would like you to believe you know this idea that certain people are predispensed to conquer or to be intelligent or better or certain primers to violence or brutality all these wonderful ideas about how people are defined by their biology or no better said by their dna and not their con material conditions is precisely the problem chapter six the serving so i've talked about i've talked about dna and race and giving you a couple examples but i i kind of want to finish off by talking about experts and what we need to do next so I've talked about how experts often are often seen as talking point speakers rather than possessing any integrity, and this is within the far-right paradigm. However, I don't feel as if a simple removal of experts from our side is really the answer to subvert that kind of perspective. Instead, what I would like to see is that people have the tools to decode and understand um, quite expansive data points or at least have a better understanding of how our knowledge about history comes together. But wh where do we kind of go from here? I would argue that despite archaeology seeming daunting in its depth, simplification does not mean ignoring or erasing information. As Lorna Richardson notes in a 2014 paper, Understanding Archaeological Authority in a Digital Context, archaeologists need to demonstrate the value of their work on a consistent basis to a wide number of stakeholders, and the key to a successful approach in this carefully choreographed dance between archaeological expertise and public co-curation is to incorporate participatory techniques into the organizational public engagement strategies. 
And I think this is primarily where archaeologists who are interested in the past and interested in the public, like myself, can actually provide a kind of tools. Like, we, we don't need to tell people how things are. I mean, obviously, look, when these guys go on about a rudimentary European culture existing thousands of years ago, I mean, I can safely say we do not have evidence of that. But they'll appeal to that sense of togetherness in the face of changes. And I think when we are talking about situations in which we're having to deal with new things, in situations where we're going to have to deal with demographic changes, I think the takeaway really is that we've always had demographic changes. We've always been part of a changing landscape. And there's not been a time in Britain when those changes didn't exist. In fact, during the Neolithic, it seems as if that happened at an accelerated rate. Cheddarman is only one of 80 points of study within this scientific study. Cheddarman was not special in any sense. Cheddarman was a normal part of a scientific investigation into the past. But it's funny how when Cheddarman is taken and worked through the media pipeline, how Cheddarman becomes much more than just a piece of data. He represents, for some, a threat, and for others, a kind of complete upending of what they believed. But let's face it, if you don't really care about skin colour or race, or you don't care that, you know, where you, where you come from, it doesn't really, doesn't really matter what Cheddar Man was like. Because the thing is, the public as a whole is not separate to myself. I'm an active member of that great society, <laughs> great here in its size and its capacity to think. But I can't reconcile that openness when people have a built-in narrative that places on an artificial hierarchy on the world, one which purports to give meaning by tying people to the genetics directly. I'm ready to discuss what these representations of the past of Cheddarman and others may mean for us and show how these representations of Cheddarman and others may, uh, for how we show the past and what that ultimately, how that ultimately plays into a long-term view of British history. But I'm not ready to have shouting matches with people who will argue till blue in the face that some populations as a whole are just less intelligent than white people. Because let's face it, that is the charge being made here. And to be sure, question this representation. Engage with the narrative. Ask questions. But honestly, don't presuppose the answers before they've arrived. And remember, the humiliation of the far right is not necessarily its undoing. If you have a look at Umbert Echo's um, paper on Ur-Fascism, you'll find there are different tenets of being fascist. One of these weird contradictory tenets is that of an enemy that is too strong and too weak. This plays into this idea that, you know, liberalism or leftism is this weak narrative that allows it to be conquered. But at the same time, the people in charge uh, have all this in insurmountable power to control and deceive. And it's funny how Cheddarman really takes a lot of the boxes. For example, another idea is the grand conspiracy this grand narrative. Cheddarman, in actuality, isn't part of a grand narrative. He's just as much a part of a grand narrative as any other body. But you can see how his representation in the media has a kind of effect, a knock-on effect. 
And I think I'll close just by asking the question, why do you think that Cheddar Man had such an impact past the actual data? Why did Cheddar Man really cause so many right-wingers to go absolutely crazy? Was it just because he was black? Or was he actually only in their world a complete disruption of history? It just goes to show you how fragile that belief is. That one body, one, well, I mean, professionally made, and I think it was uh, forensic reconstructionists who made the actual face of Cheddar Man. You know, it's, it's funny how just that creation upends so much of this blood and soil worldview. For those not familiar, Blood and Soil is a translation of Blut und Boden. It's a very famous Nazi phrase. And it was about, you know, tying who you are to your nation, to your ground. It was also one of the chants at Charlottesville. Take that how you will. But I find it so interesting that despite this strong veneer of knowing truth, one representation can throw it all to pot. Because the strength in real archaeological information, scientific information, is the fact that when we learn more, we can do more with it. It doesn't just scare us. It's what drives us as archaeologists. So, thank you very much for listening to this episode of The Anarchaeologist. That was Supremacist Cheese Board. I personally love to thank all the people who have bothered during the creation process and particular thanks goes to the two voices who are heard at the start, uh, Kevin Logan and Michael Rowlands, both who have YouTube channels who kind of debunk alt-right guys and talk about other things. Um, links will be in the description. I'll try and include some of the links to the actual information in the description. I'm sure a quick Google search can bring you to all the right-wing sites. I'm not really wanting to give them any kind of linkage. So I've mentioned them by name. I've mentioned what they're talking about. I mean, honestly, you guys can find it yourselves, but I do not want to send people anywhere near them. Um, I'd really like to hear what you guys have to say. I don't think this is going to be a common thing that happens. Uh, I'm, I'm kind of okay with the alt-right being stopped here. Uh, when it comes to history and archaeology and I'm kind of happy just be able to find, fight my corner on this one. Um, I've got a few other ideas about archaeology as a whole um, for the next time and I think um, there's a lot of better people who can talk about, you know, right-wing nationalism stuff so I think I'll leave it up for them. Uh, I will be at a conference this month um, end of April I will be doing uh, CIFA, Chartered Institute for Archaeologists down in Brighton, so um, if you're there, come seek me out, I'll probably be arranging some stuff, talking to a couple of things, people do some, do some live stream or something yeah, it'll be good fun, uh, but yeah thank you again, uh, remember the Archaeology Podcast Network has a number of different shows on it, we're supported by you our members, and you can sign up to membership and get um, you know, a discount off you can get access to um uh, new content early you'll get access to bonus content and you'll be supporting the network so if you're interested head over to arcpodnet.com for slash members otherwise thank you very much for listening once again it honestly means a lot to me to hear from you guys and yeah till next time This has been a presentation of the Archaeology Podcast Network. Visit us on the web for show notes and other podcasts at www.archpodnet.com. Contact us at chris at archaeologypodcastnetwork.com.
And now for a poem by Chatterman from my mum. Skin Deep After aeons and slumber in the recess of a cave, in a canyon formed by a receding glacier, the unbleached fretwork of a male skeleton is lifted into the light of the modern day by a pale heir of his own millennial old DNA. The past astonishingly becomes the present as pieces are fitted into the final puzzle in a most delicate and precious operation. The reconstruction of Cheddarman begins as the ancient osseous tissues are laid out, are tested and drilled into, the malleus still harbors traces of re retrievable DNA. The MIR scanner bounces its magnetic field over the pruned fragments to align the proton spins. I love you, mum. While in another country, two artistic brothers, identical twins, begin to the cover the 3D printout of a bust carefully staking out the dimensions of muscle and skin, tenderly applying layer upon layer, clay upon clay, paint upon paint, thoroughly mixing the pigments for the correct shade predicted by the DNA result. Finally, the millennia fall away and he stares back at us modern millennials with piercing blue eyes, his dark brown skin, more accustomed to a fiercer sun than England's green and pleasant plains reflect, a mass of tight black corkscrew curls gather from his brow to the nape, defying our constructs and theories on race and type of these cold shores. And yet he's truly the forefather of all, who themselves want to be true blue, British and white.